Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Will Hamilton's homeless encampments be dismantled? City staff pushing for an urban boundary expansion. Some tenants in Stony Creek say their landlords are lousy. We get a preview of the COP26 climate conference, look at an interesting report about minimum wage, and we'll tell you which Halloween costumes are flying off the rack this year. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A Superior Court judge is expected to deliver a decision on the future of encampments here in Hamilton. You've seen tents, uh, particularly in the downtown core in some parks. Um, On one side, we have lawyers and advocates for homeless residents who want a permanent injunction to stop the city from dismantling these encampments. Uh, On the other side... Legal counsel for the city wanting the encampments gone and uh, directing those people to other housing options. Here to shine a light on it is City Councilor for Ward 2, Jason Farr, and he joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. The ghost of Angelo was uh, doing a sloppy monster mass just now. Too much wine, I guess. He he was dipping into the uh, the red stuff, that yeah. is for sure, yes. Um, Quite a story, Rick. Yeah, I know. Freaky. Um, maybe not as compelling in what, what's, what, what's happening at, uh, in, in downtown Hamilton, and, well, throughout parts of Hamilton, not just downtown, with these homeless encampments. Do you have any guess on how Justice Andrew Goodman is going to rule on this issue? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, 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 not, not as enduring either. Uh, I, do, I do not. I do know, uh, having you know, participated, at least as a viewer, of both uh, days of uh, full testimony, um, you know, that he may have dropped a few hints uh, here and there. Uh, ultimately, you know, we're going to leave that decision to the judge, and he's basically judging the tests. And there's three tests, and it's conveyance and, and, and um, uh, things like that. And, and, and um, you know, what, uh, you know, this case could mean and the decision could mean with respect to the safety and security of others and those sorts of things. So um, the case is uh, definitely something that he also said was of great public interest. And of course, you know that and many in the media know that and and a growing number of uh, residents will be waiting with bated breath on this decision today as well. But, uh, you know, it's hard to predict. You could look at other cases, very similar cases in Toronto. You could look at an injunction case that was actually thrown out just last year. But then again, as soon as ours wrapped up, a Supreme Court in B.C. ruled um, just last week, late last week, that uh, the encampments that were happening in the downtown area of Vancouver had to go. However, they said the ones in the outskirts in Prince George could stay, mostly uh, Indigenous folks, and uh, they would only stay until shelter spaces were available. So that was a case of shelter spaces not being available, which in large part is not a problem here in Hamilton. So he certainly has a lot to stew on, but I did appreciate the fact, and I think a lot of us appreciate it on both sides of this, that he wanted to come back sooner rather than later. So does the city have a suitable amount of space to house everyone who's in an encampment right now? For the most part, for most individuals right now, uh, absolutely. There always has been, there always will be. We just had an announcement, actually. During the pandemic, we went from about 300, let's say approximately 350 spaces to over 500. So we've worked with our partners who don't want to take us to court and sue us. And there's a lot of good ones out there that are working on our housing first model. And that's the goal for all of us. and has been for some time and always will be in, in providing those spaces and making more safer, humane accommodations available. And, um, you know, we, we continue to, to work on that. Our challenges have been, uh, you know, in many respects, 
we have those activists and advocates and outreach doctors that want to take us to court. This is the second vote in as many years who want to promote this unsafe and inhumane living. Their reasons I'll let them offer, but uh, to us, it's not humane, it's not safe, it's not the way any citizen should live. And promoting this with tent drives and, and setting up tents and, and, and making this unbearable situation even more unbearable isn't helpful. You're creating essentially a second-tiered housing, or sorry, shelter system that just doesn't have the supports. Um, th- that's something that actually it's a, it's a key, it's a really key situation right now, and it's and it's something that you know more and more residents are having issues with and and so you know something something's got to give here there's no doubt about that we're chatting with war two councillor jason farr here on good morning hamilton on 900 chml rick samprin with you on a friday morning considering we have enough space for most of these people why are most of these people not in those spaces what is the pushback well that's the other part they're also being encouraged in my view i think it's not too hard to connect the dots to stay in place um for whatever point that's trying to be made from the advocacy or the activist uh, level, um, and that's not healthy. Um, they're so, in turn, saying in a lot of cases, and this was on the record at council from our director of uh, housing and homelessness, in a lot of cases they're saying, no, I don't want to go to shelter. This is my preference. I'm going to stay here. But here is what we're saying in return is illegal. It's trespassing. On August 9th, council said no more. We went back to a bylaw that prohibits overnight camping in our city parks, most of it in the downtown, it seems. Um, and we, it's a bylaw that is consistent with just about every other city in the land. Um, and it, it obviously, for a lot of reasons, we have that bylaw in place. You could look at a planning argument, Rick. You could look at the public safety argument. Uh, quite obviously, uh, nuisance, disturbance uh, into major crimes. We've had staff assaulted. We've had verbal assaults. We've had, you know, it runs the gamut. I don't need to go down the list this early. The Angelo story was hard enough to listen to. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the public intoxication, uh, uh, nudity, uh, uh, drugs, uh, fires, explosion, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult, and it just is getting worse. Since August 9th, since Council Rick moved the motion to say, let's go back to doing what other cities do. Let's prohibit camping. It's not the way we plan our cities. We don't plan our parks to be campsites. We don't plan this for our communities, particularly in urban areas. Let's go back to do what other cities do. Um, that, that's something that, you know, obviously the, we, is getting worse since August 9th. We had 20 encampments. We have 44 now. So... The enforcement and sustainable enforcement, it's hard to keep up. It's not working as well. And so, you know, uh, one one of many, many residents, and I hear from many every day, said it as a delegate to our planning committee two weeks ago. Enough is enough. We'll have to leave it there, Jason. Really appreciate the time, and uh, we'll wait for uh, today's ruling from Justice Goodman. Appreciate it. We're all waiting with bated breath, Rick. Thanks. Have a good one. Jason Farr, City Councilor, Ward 2 for the City of Hamilton, uh, talking about the uh, homeless encampments issue in this city. And uh, Justice Andrew Goodman, Superior Court Judge, expected to rule at some point today on uh, whether or not a uh, permanent injunction uh, will be in place to stop the city from dismantling these encampments or if these encampments will be dispersed and these uh, people will have to uh, find some shelter. And again, as you heard from Jason Farr, the uh, city councillor, there is uh, more than enough space for available for most of these individuals. So let's get them indoors, especially with the winter months uh, coming and um, much healthier conditions inside as opposed to outside. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us now to talk about the urban boundary expansion issue, which has been a hot topic here in Hamilton, is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko. JP, how are you today? I'm good. Good morning, Rick. You sent out a flurry of tweets yesterday because it appears city staff are going the urban boundary expansion route. What's happening? Staff uh, have their final draft recommendations in to council for a meeting that will be held on November the 9th. And their recommendation is an urban boundary expansion of just over 3,200 acres uh, with an immediate expansion of 750 acres uh, between now and the next 10 years followed by uh, about 1,400 acres in 20 years, and then finally another 1,100 acres over the uh, the 30-year time frame. So it's pretty much the same recommendation that we've seen before. So correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, did not the City of Hamilton unleash a survey of residents and received about 18,000 responses, and the overwhelming majority, more than 90% of respondents said, you know what, we're fine how we are, we do not want to expand the urban boundary. Yeah, we sent out a citywide survey, and, you know, as, as the municipality, we're always trying to get residents engaged on topics, and it's it's difficult because unless it affects you uh, directly, you're, you're probably not going to engage and, and offer your opinion on, on something. Um, so we work really hard to make sure that our residents are involved in decision-making, and in this case, you know, we got 18,000 responses across the city, which... Um, talk to anybody that's in municipal politics, that is just an absolute unprecedented uh, level of engagement and involvement. And it was 90% saying, no, don't expand the urban boundary. So you're also intimating in, in one of your tweets that you're hopeful that City Council is going to put the kibosh on this. So talk about that debate that's coming up and, and what's going to be discussed. Well, we're going to have to give direction to staff of whether we're going to proceed down this route of an urban boundary expansion or if we're going to ask them to look at other options. And when I look around the table with my, my colleagues, I think I'm pretty hopeful that council is going to say no to this. Because if I look at so the rural councillors, councillors Johnson, Partridge and, and Vanderbeek have been very concerned about uh, preserving prime agricultural land. The lower city and downtown councillors, councillors Wilson Nen and um, Jason Farr, um, I've been very uh, concerned about environmental issues and growth along the LRT corridor. Uh, when I come up onto the mountain, you know, Councillor Clark in Upper Stony Creek uh, from day one has been extremely concerned about the growth patterns in Alfreda. Uh, that's kind of sprawl growth on the Upper Stony Creek mountain. Um, Councillor Pauls and I are, are definitely clear, hearing from our residents that are saying loud and clear, no urban boundary expansion. And uh, just recently, the mayor has been on record saying that he will not support an urban boundary expansion either. So I I think that the will of council is there to say no to this. Uh, But the question then becomes, what, what do we do instead? Yeah, and you know, I'll say for the record, and, and you know, my opinion really doesn't amount to a hill of beans because I don't have a vote at City Council, but I am against urban boundary expansion as well. I think there's enough space, enough brownfield sites, and enough livable space in our current boundary for infill development. And I think studies have shown that, that that's much better, A, for you know the existing infrastructure, which we already have. It might not create as many jobs in terms of building new homes. Uh, it's obviously more expensive for developers to infill development as opposed to expand outwards with new developments. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think we have enough space in this city. Is, you know, why aren't developers looking at that? Is it, is it purely the cost associated with it? 
it's easier to build on a cornfield than it is to build on a brownfield or somewhere that's already within the existing urban boundaries. So it's much more profitable and it's easier. And I think as a municipality, we have to look at ways to encourage good quality infill development, because I think that's our biggest problem in Hamilton, is that we haven't seen a lot of high quality infill. For example, if you look at the north kind of central mountain, the historic in development pattern that was there was a mix of apartment buildings. We have kind of an old downtown type city street on concession. And then we have a number of kind of townhomes, duplexes, and single family homes, but they're modest single family homes. They're on small lots. They're 1, 1,200 square feet, and they're kind of that affordable built form that uh, people are looking for. What we're building today is mostly either one-bedroom condos, which are not family-friendly, or we're building million-dollar houses on a cornfield, which are completely out of reach for most residents in the city of Hamilton. So that's what we need to do as a municipality, is figure out how we're going to encourage that, uh, that more affordable, that more friendly urban-built form. We're talking about the urban sprawl issue in the city of Hamilton with Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko. You are listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, watching on CHML's Facebook page. Uh, when it comes to provincial policy, we know that the provincial government has a uh, an urban boundary scenario or plan in place. Um, is If council votes no to this, do you expect uh, some kind of retort from the province? Well, the province has spent the past three years basically putting policy in place that ensures that municipalities expand their urban boundaries. So they've, they have a, a, an incorrect and inflated uh, po- um, um, population projections, which we know we've never even come close to meeting. Um, they've put in what's called the market approach that says we basically have to build what people are buying now, which is, you know, a chicken and an egg scenario. So if you're expecting people to build or buy more townhomes and modest houses, but you're not building them now, then obviously you can't show that there's a market need for that. Um, and then finally, they've increased the time horizon uh, for 30 years. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it, trying to predict market trends and, uh, and growth patterns 30 years in the future. You know, um, 30 years ago, none of us had a computer, and now we're walking around with one in our, in our pockets. So... Uh, it, we, we know that we're going to have challenges meeting the provincial goals because they've they stacked the deck against us. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't present a plan to them that will still meet those uh, requirements if we can show how we can accommodate this kind of growth within the existing urban boundary. Hey, John Paul, thanks for joining us today and uh, continuing to shine a light uh, on this. We'll keep tracks of this, uh, certainly on Good Morning Hamilton and in the CHML News as well. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you, you too. That is John Paul Denko, Ward 8 Councillor, City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A community and tenants organization is calling on the City of Hamilton to take bold action to protect tenants. It comes as these tenants of some high-rise apartments in Stony Creek say they're fed up with their lousy landlords. They're tired of skyrocketing rents. Some of their units are falling apart. They're in disrepair and they have pest infestations. Does not sound like a nice place to live. Well, a march and rally is planned for tomorrow at noon at the Dominic Agostino Riverdale Community Center on Violet Drive. 
And our guest to uh, tell us about this is Cristiano De Silva. He's a Stony Creek tenant and a member of ACORN, an advisory group that helps tenants in the city. And he joins us now. Cristiano, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Um, it, it doesn't sound like this uh, a very nice place to live in, in Stony Creek. What's going on in these apartments? Well, just as you mentioned, where a lot of tenants are dealing with pest infestations, repairs are not getting done. Um, they're also dealing with some aggressive landlords. They're facing pressure to move. Um, it's being driven by flat-out greed and, and profit, to be honest. And so this goes back to those renoviction type of scenarios where a tenant is pressured to move out, the landlord renovates the units, you know, throws on a fresh coat of paint, maybe does some other things, and then rents out that unit for a higher price. Correct. And, and a lot of times even work orders and work requests are being ignored and neglected and that increases the pressure for them to move. And so ACORN is organizing um, action and calling for the city to do something about it as well. Yeah, ACORN calling for bold action from the city. So what do we want to see here? What what has to happen? Cristiano, are you still with us? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so, so what has to happen here? What kind of action do you want to see? We want to see the city prioritize affordable and safe housing. We need a citywide landlord licensing program to ensure landlords are keeping their buildings in good repair and bold action taken to create more affordable housing. For example, the LRT is going to end in Stony Creek. We need a strong inclusionary zoning policy to get more affordable units on private land along the route. So that would be one method. But definitely the city needs some kind of licensing program to hold these landlords accountable. So talk about the pressure or the aggressiveness of the landlords. Is that on a daily basis? How does it happen? Yes, I, I hear a lot. I've spoken to many tenants personally, and I've been hearing different um, stories, which is, is horrific. And this is not what I expected from landlords at all. One family uh, received an eviction letter for simply um, her children being too loud. And this is this is the kind of tactics that landlords are resorting to, sending uh, frivolous um, letters and, and hoping that the tenants would just um, move out of fear. Because a lot of tenants, they, they don't want to ruffle any feathers. They don't want to cause any trouble. And so they don't know what their rights are. They don't want to speak up. And, and, and landlords are sending out these letters with intimidation and fear tactics and it just makes you wonder how many tenants have fallen for these letters. It's 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 horrendous. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, Cristiano De Silva is our guest. He's a Stony Creek tenant and a member of ACORN. And a march and rally is planned for tomorrow at noon at the Dominic Agostino Riverdale Community Center on Violet Drive. As the Riverdale apartment tenants are uh, obviously irate, uh, calling their landlords lousy, aggressive. They're seeing their rents go way up. Their units are in disrepair and they have pest infestations. It's it's not a good scenario. There is a Landlord and Tenant Act. There's a Landlord and Tenant Advisory Board. Are, are many of these cases, are, are any tenants kind of ringing the alarm bell to say, hey, look at us, we need some help? They are. And the Landlord and Tenant Act is actually being updated. And a, lo- a lot of it is due to the activism from ACORN. And just so your listeners know, ACORN, it stands for an Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. 
It's uh, it's national and across Canada. It's a membership-based community union and low and moderate income people and has chapters from coast to coast to coast, B.C. to Nova Scotia. Hamilton Acorn currently has four chapters, the downtown, East End, on the mountain, and Stony Creek has just launched recently. And, and yeah, we're, we're, we're pushing for reform, and we're slowly starting to see those changes being um, written into the, the property standards. So in terms of the Landlord and Tenant Advisory Board, I mean, are, are any complaints being fielded to that body? Is, is there a backlog there because of the pandemic? Absolutely, there's a backlog, and we've seen tenants make calls to bylaw inspectors, for example, and I think the pandemic definitely doesn't help the situation. Um, so there, there is a lack of action on the, on the city's part, but there is also a backlog that they're do- dealing with. Now, obviously, uh, you know, a march and a rally is, is all great, but, you know, what happens once, you know, tomorrow comes and, and ends? What kind of pressure will you apply to the city or to anyone else who, who you think can help out? Well, we're starting locally and trying to build up um, more support, and we're also sending out letters to the landlords directly, and we're going to be writing to city councillors, and we're just hoping that we see more people um, get involved, and the more the more support we get, the more a possibility we have to creating these reforms and seeing the changes that we desperately need. We have a homelessness crisis. Where we're we're dealing with um, a lack of affordable rent and gentrification. There's all kinds of issues that are affecting everybody, whether directly or indirectly. And and, and we have to say enough is enough. We have to draw the line. And we have to see changes. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a good uh, scenario. Cristiano, really, uh, thank you for the time. And, uh, well, good luck with uh, the march and the rally and uh, getting uh, tenants in these uh, apartments uh, to a better place. Thank you for having me on. Good morning. Yes, uh, enjoy your weekend. Cristiano De Silva, Stony Creek tenant, Acorn member, and that uh, march and rally again planned for noon tomorrow out on Violet Drive. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The 26th UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP26. You've heard that term over the last number of days. Well, that kicks off on Sunday, and countries around the world are being urged to step up the fight against global warming. Here to discuss this is Matthew Hoffman, a political science professor at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Matthew, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What can we expect over the next couple of weeks at this conference? Well, we certainly can expect a lot of attention on what countries are planning to do Uh, We can expect a lot of protests. We can expect a lot of hand-wringing over whether this COP is going to be able to deliver the kind of momentum that we need to reach the Paris Agreement and to head off some of the worst impacts of climate change. So how optimistic are you that some common ground will be found, some breakthrough will be made, or are we just going to keep doing what we've been doing for, for many decades? Um, I, I think it's probably somewhere in between those two options. Um, the The key is that this COP, everyone, all the countries are supposed to be bringing their updated commitments. I mean, for the Paris Agreement, it's no longer a single uh, it's no longer a single idea of what countries should be doing. But each country says, "Here's what my national commitment is." 
And so they had their original commitments for Paris in 2015. And this COP is when every country is supposed to bring their updated and hopefully improved national commitments to the international community and where we can see if we're at where we're at in terms of progress towards the Paris Agreement goals. Um, and so I'm optimistic in the sense that the, the process is working. Countries are bringing updated and for the most part improved commitments. But the commitments are probably not going to be enough. We're, we're, and this is what all the early analysis is of the commitments that countries have been making, is that it's not going to be enough to get us on track towards the Paris or get us on track to fulfilling the Paris Agreement goals of 1.5 degrees of warming. But there is momentum. And so that brings me some that brings me some hope. And as with any of these national commitments, the real test is going to be when countries start to really take implementation seriously. And that's what I really want to see coming out of this COP is the, the momentum and energy to implement what they're promising to do. Yeah, I, I do want to speak to that momentum. But you, you mentioned about, you know, when the rubber hits the road, what are those tangible changes that are going to be made? And, you know, I, I go all the way back to the Kyoto Accord in 1990. And yeah, the Paris Agreement six years ago, and all these commitments are made. But countries, you know, really around the world have fallen short on what they are hoping or planning or wishing to do. How do we get there? What has to be done between now and let's say the next 10 years to get to that 1.5 degree level or lower, obviously? Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of work to do. Let's, and we have to be, I think, really honest about that. But it's a lot of work that I think can actually help improve societies around the world. Um, we have to have a major move towards electrifying everything because getting fossil energy out of our electric systems, our electrical generation systems, is by far the sort of fastest way to start getting our emissions down. And that that's going to take a lot of work, but there's a lot of opportunity in doing that as well. We have to change how we move things around. We have to change our transportation systems. Um, and we have to we have to really start thinking seriously about what a decarbonized society looks like. What does a society look like that does not rely on fossil energy? And these are, these are some tough questions. And so we have some practical things that we have to do right away. We have to get buildings, uh, get buildings heavily insulated. We have to do lots of retrofitting of existing buildings. We have to make new buildings zero carbon. We have to change the electric system so that it is fossil energy free and we have to electrify everything. So there's a whole bunch of practical things we need to do. But then we also have to be, be thinking and imagining about what, a low, what we want the, a low carbon society to look like. What do we want a just and more equitable low carbon society to look like? I guess the question is, I know we're playing a lot of catch up here. Uh, can we catch up before the world goes into the pooper, so to speak? <laughs> Yes, I, I think so. I, I think that the climate science tells us that it's not too late. And one of the things to remember is that any warming that we avoid is harm avoided, right? And so right now, the, the pledges that countries have made, the, the estimates that I've seen that if they are fulfilled and if those commitments are carried out, put the world on track for about 2.7 degrees of warming, which is, which is terrible, um, which would lead to a lot of, of terrible consequences. But the pledge, as countries start to implement their pledges and as they start to take on their commitments, it's going to build the momentum to start bringing that number down. 
right? And I think that one of the things that we find over time is that once you start acting on climate change, you can accelerate that action on climate change. And, and we're actually seeing that, that here in Canada to some degree. And so I have some, I have still have optimism that we can move towards uh, the 1.5 degrees, but it's going to take a, quite a bit of work. Uh, you mentioned momentum. We only got a minute to to spend on this. Is that momentum a global momentum? And I'm, when I say global, I'm I'm looking at China, which is by far and away the biggest polluter on the planet. Yeah, there there was there was. I was feeling better about momentum over the last year. China just put in their new commitment, and it's it's not as ambitious as people were hoping. It's it's still relative to many other countries quite ambitious. And I, I think that the, country, the world is trying to figure out what to do sort of post-pandemic here. And there's some, China's facing a bit of trouble with, with energy right now. And so that has, I think, tempered their momentum and their ambition around climate change. Hopefully that is temporary, but you're seeing momentum in other ways, right? And I think for the first time, we've seen a global social movement that is really pushing hard to take climate change and treat climate change like an emergency. And I, I think that that is going to, to bear fruit in terms of momentum globally. We'll have to leave it there, Matthew. Really appreciate the insight today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your weekend. Thanks for having me. That's Matthew Hoffman. He is a political science professor at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, reflecting on the 26th UN Climate Change Conference, which kicks off this Sunday. It's a two-week affair. It kicks off this Sunday in Glasgow, Scotland. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, This might sound surprising, but a new report shows that 93% of minimum wage earners here in Ontario do not live in low-income households. Think about that for a second. 93% of minimum age workers in this province don't live in low-income households. It's a new study out of the Fraser Institute, and here to talk about it is Ben Eisen. He's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and co-author of Who Earns the Minimum Wage in Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Very well. Good morning to you as well. Tell us about this study and how you conducted it and and ultimately what you found. Well, what we did was we were interested in looking at who earns the minimum wage in Canada, looking at some of their characteristics, what kinds of household they live in, in terms of uh, household income, what age they are, and and other factors like that, with the purpose of trying to understand a little bit better uh, how likely it is that raising the minimum wage can actually help reduce poverty. And what we found were some pretty striking and perhaps surprising statistics. Uh, In Ontario, specifically, we found how many of minimum wage workers, what percentage of them live in low-income households. And it was only 7.2% of minimum wage workers living in in families below the low-income cutoff line. Now, that might sound surprising, but the reason for it is that most of them are secondary or tertiary, second or third earners in households that live above the low-income cutoff line that are not poor. Uh, so the opportunities that we have for actually lifting out of people, these people out of poverty are very limited, given that they're not in poverty to begin with. We further found that more than half are either teenagers or very young adults. So that's the profile of minimum wage workers, and it should give us pause before thinking that raising the minimum wage is an effective strategy for reducing poverty, uh, simply because most people uh, earning the minimum wage don't live in low-income households. Were those numbers a surprise to you as they were rolling in and you're analyzing the data? 
I would say that this, the extent of it is a surprise. We've, we've done similar analysis in past years. Um, it was interesting to see where we would land this year since the minimum wages increased quite substantially in a number of provinces over the last few years. But I would say that when we started doing this analysis and started looking, I was certainly aware uh, that a large percentage uh, of, lo- of minimum wage earners would be teenagers living at home with parents and things of that nature. But yeah, I think I would be willing to say that uh, the, the extent of it and the fact that it was only about 7.2% uh, in low-income households, I, I think that it, that was a lower percentage than I would have expected going into the research. So how does this impact the quest to continue to increase that minimum wage? Well, I think it should make us uh, give careful thought to what we can and can't hope to achieve by raising the minimum wage. Uh, certainly, there, there are a number of different uh, possible objectives, but if one of them is to reduce poverty, uh, we should be skeptical about whether or not raising the minimum wage is an effective strategy for doing that. Uh, there might be other objectives that people are trying to accomplish by raising the minimum wage, but we need to go uh, one by one and do research to try and better understand uh, the opportunities that we have for one policy or another to achieve specific objectives. And the specific objective of reducing poverty, which is very often cited as a primary reason for raising the minimum wage, uh, the evidence that we've looked at uh, and re- released in our study this week suggests that we should be skeptical that it's going to do very much on that front. And that's consistent with Canadian research uh, that's tried to look at the relationship between higher minimum wages and reduced poverty, that it's very difficult to find uh, any sort of relationship. And the, the reason, the most important reason for that uh, is what we looked at today, that most minimum wage earners uh, simply aren't poor. Ben Eisen is our guest, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and co-author of Who Earns the Minimum Wage in Canada? The new report shows that 93% of minimum wage earners in Ontario don't live in low-income households. So does this end the debate, or, or at least the correlation of minimum wage and living wage? Are those two very different things? They're very related concepts. The notion of a, 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 a mandated, a uh, required by government uh, living wage is very often uh, a way of describing wh- how the government ought to choose to set uh, its minimum wage. Uh, so they're very closely related concepts. And no, I don't think that the data uh, that we've presented this week uh, ends that debate uh, at all. There's a number of different uh, factors that go into setting a minimum wage, and there's different arguments for and against uh, trying to set it based on uh, based, based on a living wage approach. Uh, but certainly we should, it, it does shed light on the question of whether doing that uh, is going to help do very much to reduce poverty. People may prefer uh, to take that approach and to take a higher minimum wage uh, for other reasons. Uh, but, but if the goal is to reduce poverty, we need to start looking at other tools uh, because the minimum wage's efficacy in that department has to be low, uh, given that what we've, we're talking about, that most minimum wage earners are in fact secondary earners in households that, that are, are not low income, which is to say they don't fall below Statistics Canada's uh, low income cutoff line to begin with. And that's what we found from our analysis of Statistics Canada data. Very interesting stuff. Ben, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your weekend. And you as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's Ben Eisen, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute, also a co-author of the Who Earns the Minimum Wage in Canada? 93% of minimum wage earners in Ontario don't live 
in low-income households. Some interesting statistics there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A couple days before Halloween, the little ones are getting ready. They're getting amped for their their next haul of uh, candies and chocolate bars. And a big part of Halloween, of course, is dressing up in maybe your favorite character, something that's cool or very scary. Here to help us along on this segment of our spooky Hamilton series is Gina Anke. She is with Theatrix Costume House, and we welcome her to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Gina. Good morning, and how are you this morning? <laughs> I'm fa- I'm fantastic. So Halloween must be like Christmas for you guys. It is, it is, and I think this year especially more than ever, um, it's 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 an extra celebration. It's an opportunity for you know young adults and adults and children to dress up and celebrate and just take one day out of the year to be someone else. So there, it's, it's, it's been an incredible experience so far. I would imagine because we didn't really have a Halloween last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are being allowed, yep. I guess, for lack of a better term, to go out trick-or-treating yeah. again. It is, are you seeing that pent-up demand? Oh, absolutely. Um, we're all of our regular clients and new clients in Hamilton. We're just so thrilled to be in Hamilton. But yes, it's uh, it's definitely in demand, and and now that we uh, we have the opportunity to gather, it's it's just it's a great opportunity for everybody to pick a character or an era and dress up and 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 go you know go go into it one hundred percent. It's been amazing. Are there certain trends this Halloween that people are kind of gravitating to? What are some of the costumes that are flying off the shelves? Yeah, interesting enough, that's a really good question. <laughs> Um, I thought that um, I, I guess I was under the impression that we would we would have requests for very particular uh, characters from Netflix and and you know popular movies and such. We have some, but it seems like the classic Halloween costumes are are, are very prevalent this Halloween. So we've we've had um, requests for Dracula, Elvis. All sorts of different witches, the Joker, Gothic Priest, 1920 Flappers, Phantom of the Opera, Napoleon, Beefeater costumes, you name it. And, and I think it's more the historical costumes, um, and that's what we specialize in at theatrics, that um, people are most interested in renting from us. So it's picking an era and having fun with that and adding you know, pieces, accessories, hats, and bringing, bringing it to life. Why do you think that is? Why are people going, I guess, the nostalgic route? Is it just because we didn't have a Halloween last year and now they really want to blow it up? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> what we've been getting this year is uh, we really want to stand out. We didn't we didn't get to celebrate last Halloween, so this Halloween we're going to go all out. And uh, that's been the response uh, from many, many new people that have come to theatrics. It's, we want something different. We want something unique. Um, and, um, and they're going all in. It's, it's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing dressing, um, everyone up in, in costumes, hats, accessories, props, and, and watching it come to life. It's, it's been amazing. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Gina Aki. She is with Theatrix Costume House. Um, why do we love getting dressed up on Halloween? What's the appeal, especially for adults? We know why there's an appeal for kids. You know, there, there's candy involved. Yeah. What, about, what about the big boys and girls? I think, the, I, think, I think the reasoning behind it is that it gives us an opportunity to step away from everyday life 
It gives us an opportunity to dress up and have fun. And I must say, there are more adults I know enjoying Halloween <laughs> more than young adults <laughs> um, and young children. It gives everybody an opportunity to be someone else for one evening or one day. Um, and I think I think that's a wonderful a wonderful thing to do. It, it's it's a lot of fun, and and people love to get together and celebrate and and honor, uh, you know, a favorite icon or or, or a character. For, for one night. So I, I think it's really, really important, especially this year. You rattled off a couple of uh, cool uh, outfits or costumes that people are gravitating to. What's your favorites? Do you, do you have a, a best or a favorite Halloween costume that is uh, in the store or, or has been purchased? Um, I would have to say the majority of our Star Wars um, costumes have, have left the house. <laughs> <laughs> Chewbacca, um, Amadella. Um, Han Solo, but I, I have to say my favorite is definitely the Renaissance era. I love dressing up in a, in a beautiful, um, embellished, uh, Rococo dress with um with uh with a white wig it's a lot of fun <laughs> i love it <laughs> <laughs> gina we also have the uh, the masks on masks issues is, is that a, a topic of conversation at theatrics costume house because especially for the little ones you know you got to wear masks either on top or underneath your mask no absolutely i i think there's it i don't think it is a concern i think that every everyone seems to be working around it uh, you know, we we want to get out. We want to get out. We want to have fun. We still need to abide, uh, you know, by the rules. Uh, and people are finding creative ways to do it. It could be uh, makeup, for example, with the mask, um, or adding a wig or adding a hat. I, whatever it is, um, we're finding ways around it, and it's working. Great to hear, Gina. Really, thank uh, thank you for the time, and uh, enjoy Halloween this weekend. Oh, I will. And happy Halloween to you, too. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.